welcome to the Defender Podcast, a resource to help mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm your host, Herbie Newell. Well, we are thrilled today to be joined by Sam Collier on the Defender Podcast. Sam is a pastor, speaker, and writer, and the host of A Greater Story with Sam Collier. Sam and his sister, uh, his twin sister, were adopted at a young age, and we are so grateful to get to hear a little bit about Sam's adoption story, but also about the book that he just recently wrote as well. Uh, So thrilled to have Sam on the Defender Podcast. But before we hear from Sam, I want to let you know about our resource page. Did you know we have hundreds of helpful articles, activity ideas, and other materials on our resource pages? The topics covered include adoption, attachment, siblings, medical needs, children's behavioral challenges, birth parents, how to address grief and trauma, and so much more. Visit lifelinechild.org backslash resources. Again, that's lifelinechild.org backslash resources to learn more about all of these helpful articles, ideas, and other materials. We're grateful to be joined by Sam Collier, and he is a pastor, speaker, writer, and most importantly, the host of A Greater Story with Sam Collier. So he's a TV and radio podcaster. Uh, he's also a speaker, and he has spoken with North Point Ministries, founded by Andy Stanley, as well as at the Rethink Group, the Orange Network, the Orange Tour, the Alpha International Leadership Conference, Willow Creek Global Leadership Summit, Culture Conference, and so much more. He's been interviewed by numerous TV shows, podcasts, and radio programs, and he lives with his wife, Tony, and his daughter in Atlanta, Georgia. And so one of the reasons we were just so excited to have Sam join us today on the Defender podcast is because as he writes in his most recent book, A Greater Story, which is a, 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 just a, a tale of his life and part of his story being being adopted when he was an infant, uh, we're just grateful to get to hear from Sam. So Sam, tell us just a little bit about your story, especially about your adoption story. Herbie, can I call you Herb? Absolutely. Okay. (laughs) Herb, I I just want to say it's an honor to be on this platform. And it's an honor because of what you guys do day in and day out. Um, You guys are game changers. You are life shapers, life changers. Um, And you stand in the gap. You really are defenders. And um, I'm, I'm honored to be here. Um, to contribute to the work that ultimately saved my life. That the space that you're in um, is, uh, is rescuing so many and reuniting so many, launching so many and ministering to so many. So I just, uh, I just wanted to start and say, I I really appreciate this opportunity. Um, Yeah, man, I, uh, I was adopted at a, about two months. Um, our mother was 21 when she had me and my twin sister. Um, she had three kids already. So that's five kids age 21. And she was extremely poor, extremely mm-hmm. poor down in Augusta, Georgia. And was in the hospital faced with the decision of, do I raise the, the kids that I have now in poverty 
or, you know, do I give them up for adoption? Cause I don't have enough to take care of the three that I already have. Our biological father left the picture and uh, he was addicted to um, substances, a lot of substances at the time. And uh, we actually lost him from COVID-19 three months ago. Mm. Uh, I've never met him, spoke to him twice. And uh, he had diabetes and was in the hospital, left the hospital to go get some more drugs and contracted COVID-19, went back to the hospital, passed away. Mm. And uh, I tell you that um, so you understand the grip that uh, drugs had on him. So he, he rolled out uh, when my mother was 21. So she gives us up for adoption and hopes that everything will work out. And, and it actually did. I mean, we got adopted by a couple who had just given their life to Christ a year prior. Um, my dad, when he adopted us, um, was 50. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and mother was maybe 13 or so years younger, but she couldn't have kids. So after they gave their life to Christ and got married, um, they, uh, they came, you know, a year later to the adoption agency to get us because they, because they wanted kids, but my mother couldn't have them. And so when they walk in, well, we had just been given up two months prior. Um, they look over at our crib and they say, we want them. And the lady who's running the adoption agency. And I don't know if she was white. I think she was white. Uh, I believe my dad said that this was a factor to what happened next. Um, they said, we want the twins. And the lady said, no, you don't want them. Cause you see where they come from. They're not going to be much. Mm. Um, crack addiction and poverty. And if you look at some of the adoption papers, which we found um, about four or five years ago, it, they traced some of my mother's steps, biological mother back to a prostitution house. So we don't know if she was prostituting or just living there. But with all of that information, they said they're probably not going to be much. In fact, they'll probably be mentally challenged is what she said. And so um, my, there's a movie called War Room mm -hmm. by the Kendrick brothers. <laughs> Priscilla Shire is in it. And they, the concept of the movie is that you would form a prayer closet. And in that closet, you go to war in the spirit realm. And um, so that's what they did. They formed a little prayer closet in the adoption agency <laughs> and um, prayed and said, God, what would you have us do? And he said, these are your kids. They're going to be okay. Hmm. And, and I'm sorry about that. Let me, I'm going to turn this off. a little bit of a break here so the edit should <laughs> that's right um okay in fact they'll be mentally challenged is what she said and i'm going to share this part with you i usually don't share this but i think you can identify with it so what was interesting is that they really did believe we weren't going to be much and so you know when you when you have a baby you have to bend their legs right mm. You have to mold their head. You have to, you know, they didn't bend my sister's legs for two months. 
Mm. They left me on one side of my head for a really long time. So when they adopted us, my head was really, I mean, it was flat on one side. It was horrible. And they were putting Benadryl in our milk to make us go to sleep. Mm. So we were, as my dad would, would phrase it, he said, y'all were pretty messed up when we got you. But they got us anyway. Ooh, you're going to make me cry. Mm. They adopted us anyway and uh, took us home. <laughs> and when they took us home, Channel 2 Action News, which is uh, a news station here in Georgia, depending on where people are listening to this from, came out to the house because they heard about the story. And um, the, uh, the news headline read, Christmas Miracle, Twins Have Been Rescued. Wow. <laughs> Long story short, Herb, my sister gets all A's from kindergarten up to 12th grade. Becomes an industrial engineer, dual scholarship to Spelman and Georgia Tech. And I go on to, uh, you know, be on the Lifeline podcast. (laughs) 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 You know, and, and, and all the other stuff that you read earlier, you know, and I just say that to say God really is in the miracle business. Um, through people. He really, really is in the rescue business. He really is in the, in the mess to miracle, the mess to message, the rewriting of the story. Doesn't mean he does it the same way every time or that he does it the way we want him to do it. But I do believe he does change our lives. And, um, and that's what he did. Long story short, um, you know, we overcome the odds by the power of God and the power of our parents and uh, this healthy environment. We weren't rich. Um, at all. We had every, we were middle-class actually had everything that we uh, needed didn't have everything we wanted. Um, and so after we overcome kind of these odds around age 24, um, my dad has us over to the house and we're doing what we, you know, our, our, uh, our Sunday tradition, which is in which was NFL football before COVID-19. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, and so we were watching, NFL and the, the one rule was you don't talk. And so we, um, so we didn't. And then my dad breaks the rule. He starts, he starts yelling. He's from the country, Pike County, Georgia. Um, I always say chickens, cows, and rutabagas. <laughs> <laughs> and so he was, he was a little loud, you know, not all co- country people are loud, but he, he's loud. And so he, he yells at us. You need to go find your parents. We were like, what? He said, well, you could grow up one day and marry your cousin and you wouldn't know it. He said, okay, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, we said, what? He said, and the Steve Harvey show is going to help you do it. I said, okay, you lost your mind. And I got up and left. Well, I found out you know, he had been watching the Steve Harvey show every day at the barbershop down on Auburn Avenue where we grew up. And uh, he said that the Lord spoke to him and said that, Steve Harvey was going to help us find our parents, our biological family. And, and he convinces my sister two weeks later to write in. And I said, why'd you do that? And she was just like, well, he kept yelling and they're not going to write us back. That's not happening. So a year goes by and a lady named Dorothy calls my phone. She's a producer at the Steve Harvey show. This was her first week on the job. And she says, a hundred stories were on my desk. Yours was the top one. Wow. 
we think we can help you find your biological family. Do you want to do it? I said, let me call you back. I called my sister. I said, do you want to do it? She said, no. (laughs) She was like, but I feel like we have to. This doesn't just happen. So they fly us up to do the show, Herb. And um, when we get on the show, um, they say, hey, we're so sorry. We didn't find anyone. Um, We hired a private detective, but nobody showed up. And we want to bring you on the show to make a plea that one day your biological family would show up. And we were like, okay. So we make the plea. We go to commercial break. We come back after the commercial break. Steve Harvey says, hey, I know I told you we didn't find anybody, but that's not the case. (laughs) Your biological mother is here. Eleanor, come on out. And on national television, we meet our biological mother for the first time. Mm. And then he says, and your siblings are here. And we meet our siblings that we never knew we had. Same mom, same dad. That's the story, Herb. Well, brother, I mean, I know so many emotions as you're sitting there. First of all, probably just surreal that you're on the Steve Harvey show. Right. National show. I mean, and, and Steve Harvey, this big personality. So you're probably overcome with emotions, but but what was your emotion as you look for the first time face to face with your birth mother? And you know, it was hard, man. I didn't know what to do. I uh I was shocked. If you get a chance, if anybody's listening. Um, well, or wherever you're listening from, go to uh, type in Steve Harvey and Sam Collier on Google or Sam Collier and Steve Harvey and watch the clip. And when she walks out, I just sit there because I'm frozen. I don't know. I have so many emotions going through my body. I don't know which one to choose. Mm. Should I be happy? Should I be sad? Should I be angry? Should I be surprised? Like it was so many at once. And I just put my head down to kind of collect myself. And, and I said, uh, you know, what am I going to do? And the Lord speaks to me and says, snap out of it. You're on national television (laughs) and your biological mother is standing here. You need to embrace her. And, and that's what I did. And, uh, that's how, that's how I felt. And have, what's your relationship been with her since that time? You know, I, um, we text, (laughs) We, 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 we got to a text relationship, Facebook, all like social media comments on everything. Go back. We go back and forth. She's been down to see me a couple of times. Um, she saw, she seen me preach. She's came to my 30th birthday with my uncles who I'd never met. And, you know, so we, we try to keep a healthy amount of boundaries um, while also, you know, doing our best to connect. And what, you know, I'd just be interested. So you grew up and I mean, you had obviously a mom and a dad who loved you, who provided for you, who, you know, really, even as you started from your story, believed in both you and your sister, Sarah, against what seemed like all odds. This was a mom and a dad that fought for you guys, that loved you guys, that provided for you guys. And and what were your thoughts about your birth family before you met them on the Steve Harvey show? And then how did your thoughts about your birth family change 
after you got to see them and know them, even with their struggles and their difficulties and the, the hardships, how did you see that your heart changed and your, your, your mindset changed towards them from maybe being a 20-year-old to being a 26-year-old after meeting them? Wow, what a great question. I, I think, um, you know, I'll be honest. Our parents did such a good job raising us. We weren't perfect and they weren't perfect. <laughs> so let me say that. <laughs> we had a hardship just like everybody else. We had our ups and downs. We had our moments um, like every family does. Typical family. But um, they did such a good job on the acceptance and the love and the story and the truth that we never thought about our biological family mm. ever if anything it'll be when my dad brought it up that's why it's interesting because he i mean he was the initiator of all of this hey you need to go find your parents <laughs> right it's like uh okay you know it was kind of like it was kind of like he was reminding us hey uh you do remember <laughs> that you're adopted right and you got other parents out there. Like you need to go find them. And and, 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 you know, he joked about the cousin thing, but it really was, he really felt like in order to know where you're going, you kind of got to know where you're coming, where you came from. Um, he thought it was really important um, to, uh, to give us that information and to get us that information. And so to answer you, to short answer to your, to, to the first part of your question is, we never felt any type of way because mm. we just never thought about them at all <laughs> because we had such a big family already. I think after that, though, um, after the show, the struggle for me was figuring out where to put them in my heart mm. because we, we had the mom hole was filled already. Right. With, with mom, the dad hole was filled like that's dad. It was easier for my siblings because brother and sister, you just kind of add them on. They didn't, they, they weren't necessarily replacing anyone or competing with an ideal. And so um, I think that that's what I struggled with the most. It was, okay, how do I honor my mom that raised me and embrace the one that had me? but still have an appropriate enough boundary um, for the, for the context of earning the relationship and, 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 and not microwaving something um, and just learning. And so I think that, 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 that kind of became my, that became my journey and my battle. Sam, you, you talked about how Sarah was at least a little bit more resistant towards this reunion you know, probably we could argue if it hadn't have been for Steve Harvey and the Steve Harvey show and just a once in a lifetime type of opportunity, she might not have even gone or had that desire. And we know that that a lot of kids kind of struggle at different places. Some some don't want to go back and try to reunify and some have this strong desire that every day they, they think about where did I come from and how do I how do I reunify? If you were going to give wisdom both to adoptive parents who are raising children that have been adopted either from foster care or through domestic adoption, 
as, as well as those, those adult children, what advice would you give to them about seeking reunification? Wow. I love that question. Um, there are moments when my sister wishes we never did it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have that moment, but she does. Um, I think what I would say, and this is just my opinion, people disagree with this depending on who you are. Um, but my opinion is if the mom is not already in the life or the biological family, and this kind of goes for if they are as well, the best thing my dad did was wait until we were 24. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is because, and I'm speaking from experience, the level of emotion that you have to process through, I would have not been wanting to do at 16. Hmm. It, would, it would have probably impacted me way more than what it did. It impacted my sister greatly. Hmm. But because of Jesus and because of, and she has Jesus too, but because of Jesus and also my experience in the inner city, I can understand like the, some, somewhat of the poverty mentality. And where that comes from and, and, and how to reunite while, you know, and so for my, my sister was foreign. She was like, whoa, what is this? Who, who are they? You know, um, what, you know, what we're so different is what she kept saying. We're so different. Yeah, we were so alike, but we were so different because of the whole idea of nature versus nurture. It really is a real thing. Right. Um, and so I would say, I'm not going to give you the age, but. Do it when you feel they are emotionally ready to handle it. Because if not, it could be a problem. Mm. Well, one of the things I I absolutely love about your story is you were adopted as a, a, a black boy and a black girl, two twins by a black mom and a black dad. Yeah. And, And honestly, as a ministry, I know one of the things that even now we're praying through as an organization is of the domestic adoptions that we see, only about 10% of those are are, are non-white, honestly, families that are seeking to adopt. And, you know, as a ministry, we have uh, our pastoral advisory board is made up of mostly black pastors, and they're helping us go into traditionally black churches and and to encourage families to adopt. Why was it so special to be raised in a family where you could also appreciate your culture from which you were born into? Yeah, I mean, around age 13, my dad discovered that I could sing. Maybe nine, maybe nine, maybe nine was the age. My dad can sing, but he's not a singer. (laughs) (laughs) And he noticed that about me. And he said, okay, if this kid is going to be and maximize his gifting, he needs to go get around mentors and people that sing. So he started to put me in places with people that had done singing professionally and, 
and, and really understood what the lifestyle was like to be an artist and all these things. And it's how he developed. It's how he allowed me to be developed. In other words, he recognized what he did not have mm. that I needed. And when I talk to families that adopt black kids that are predominantly white, one, I always celebrate it. Always. Because I always go, well, if you didn't adopt them, who was? <laughs> and they would have been there. Um, so there, there, there is a sense of thank you for stepping in. I think, though, the number one caveat with families that are, you know, are having interracial kids, if you will, is that you have to create singing moments for them. Mm. That has to be a part of the track. I think a lot of people get threatened by it, though, and they say, well, you know, maybe I can do it. Maybe I can. It's like, no, you have to recognize you'll never be able to fully help them grasp their blackness because you're not black. It would be the same way if I was trying to help my black kid get whiteness. <laughs> they just wouldn't get it. So I would have to expose them and let them have mentors and bring them into spaces that are with people that can teach them how to sing. Mm. And so to answer this, the long way around to your question is <laughs> um, with black families, you don't have to navigate that. Mm. It's just, it, it just is what it is. There were people that never knew we were adopted. They said, you look just like your dad. <laughs> you look just like your mom. We'd be like, yep. <laughs> and they would be like, yeah, we just, we just never had the conversation with, but, but we did actually look like, but again, we're black. So there, there, are, there are pros, there are pros. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say pros and cons, but I would just say to each one, there's a pro and, uh, you know, try to focus in on those. Mm. Hey, but if you're white and you have a black kid, don't go and bring them back. <laughs> <laughs> Keep them. But make sure you, you know, you, you go find them somebody that can teach them how to sing. Well, Sam, I, I think even one of the things, and I, I love this because, you know, your dad actually was a barber, worked at a barber shop. And, and like you've said, that's, that's where he first got this idea about the reunion at Steve Harvey. You know, one of the things that we encourage, you know, families who've adopted black children is to take them to an African-American barber shop. There's so much culture that they can experience even by, by that experience. Um, you know, for us white people, we you know the barbershop is a utilitarian deal. I go in, I want to get in and out as quickly as possible, but it is community uh, within the black community. Explain why the barbershop is so important. Barbershop is huge. Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie barbershop, <laughs> yeah, with ice, with ice Cube, I think there's three versions of it or three uh, three um, iterations. Um, the barbershop is the is where the black man goes to become a man. Mm. Um, there are other places for sure. So if you're black and you didn't go to the barbershop, okay, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> but the black the bar the black barbershop. Nine times out of 10, if you're black, you don't been to the barbershop. Um, the black barbershop is the essential point um, for, um, for black male thought and development. 
my dad had a barbershop, as I said, for years. And um, the barbershop is, you know, is where I learned about women. It's where I learned about God. It's where I learned about uh, success. It's where I learned about money management. It's where I was accepted by a group of men that were older than me that could help me. It was where I was loved on. It was what the barbershop is huge. It's huge. It is a, it is a, it is a true landmark within the black community that helps to shape the reality and the thought process and the thought and and just the thoughts in general of the black man. Very important. Well, Sam, kind of as we close a bit, I, I love this book that you've just written and released a greater story. And one of the, the quotes that, that I thought was just so powerful is that you say that you seek to help people find their purpose, to surrender to that thing that they can do day in and day out that will bring the most glory to God. And then you go on to say that you do the work that you do because you've seen what happens when people depart from that course and when they go their own way instead of God's way. You know, a lot of people have written books on finding your purpose, right? That's, that's kind of the destiny of man. What, what's our purpose? But why would you say that this book is different from others that are trying to seek to help people find their purpose? Yeah, I think, one, thanks so much for shouting out the book. We're excited about it. Go get it. Go get it. <laughs> um, I think when we talk about this idea of purpose, like you said, it's, it's one of life's greatest questions. It's very difficult for people to understand. It's very difficult for people to find it. While I would agree with that, I will also say that with the right combination, you can unlock it and you can discover it. I often give the analogy of when you get a car for the first time, you start to see it everywhere, right? Have you ever noticed that? You get, right. Yeah. It just starts showing up in different places. And, you know, one day I was talking to God about just the idea of purpose. And he brought this analogy to my mind because I was really just wanting, I'm like, God, what is happening? And he said to me, you know, what were the cars not there the whole time? Mm. And I said, yeah, they, they, they were. He said, well, the question is, is how come you didn't see it? And I think that's the question I think we have to ask ourselves. When we talk about purpose, God has left clues everywhere. Mm. They're already around us. The question is, is do we see them? It's not, are they there? It's do we see what God has already placed into our lives? I often say purpose is often or more so surrendered to than it is found. It's something that you surrender to. Um, then, then finding because God, God, I just believe our entire lives has, has already been shaping us to be what he's called us to be. I think in the book, it's different from other books in reference to purpose because I went on a three-year journey to answer the question, not just for myself, but for other people. I was at my lowest and the church wasn't making sense to me. The scriptures weren't making sense to me. I felt like I was doing everything that the Bible had asked me to do and everything that the church and the pastor told me to do, yet I was still broke, depressed, and insignificant. And I was asking God to please show me. And he took me on this journey of three years. And we later walked with these young, with a ton of young adults 
on this journey that were asking the same question. And we helped each one of them find and discover their purpose. Um, we, we, we built a process around kind of a threefold core that when your passion meets your gifting and your gifting meets provision, you discover purpose. And in the book, I break that down as to what that really means. Cause people hear that and go, Whoa, 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 Whoa. <laughs> okay. I get that's beautiful, but how does that make sense? You got to get the book. I really break it down, but, but it's, it, it is tested and it has been proven from three years of walking with uh, some of God's best and helping them discover or more so surrender to who he's already created them to be. My, my, my bottom line is purpose is available for you. Um, if you feel like you haven't found it, it's just, it's all around you. You just have to see it. Well, Sam, what a, what a fantastic story of God's grace and God's mercy and just the way that he has absolutely weaved his purpose in and throughout your life. As we close, what, what's next for you and how can people connect with you and see the things that God's doing through you and your ministry? Yeah. I mean, you know, the biggest thing for me right now is getting this book and this message into as many people's hands as possible. A Greater Story is the name of the book by Sam Collier. And just not, not to sell books, but really just to get the message out and to help people um, who feel, one, in the midst of COVID-19, that there is no hope and that God could not possibly be telling a greater story in their life or, or can. You know, we want, we want to help people understand that he can. He can turn your mess into a message. He can turn your mess into a miracle. It may not look like the miracle you want, but it will be miraculous if you let him in, especially during this season. And so we want to get it to people for that reason. Um, I think, you know, for me, um, if they hit me up on Instagram <laughs> at Sam Collier, at Sam Collier, and then really at Sam Collier on any other platform or just Google Sam Collier, whatever. Hopefully if we're doing our job right, then something pops up that will uh, help direct you to us. Amen. Well, I, I would just tell folks for sure, connect with Sam online. Also look on Amazon or your local bookseller for a greater story. Uh, it really is a great read and incredible story of finding purpose in God through a life that has been well lived. Sam, thanks for joining us and for all that you do uh, to shine the light of Christ in our community. Thank you, bro. You the man. Thanks for listening to the Defender Podcast. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Podcast to make it easier for more people to find. For more information how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, visit us at lifelinechild.org. If you want to connect with me, please visit herbienewell.com. Follow us at Lifeline on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. Beloved, will you allow God to use the gospel through you to impact the life of a child? Please contact us because we are here to defend the fatherless. We'll see you again next week for the Defender Podcast. <music>